0: I want to invite you to uh, turn with me to Exodus chapter 20. Exodus chapter 20, and once again, we've got one verse that we're looking at this morning. It's going to be 20 verse 14. Uh, just, I, I believe it's five words this time, but actually if you go to the, the Hebrew language, it's only two words, so I don't know where that falls as far as uh, the shortest uh, commandment. But verse 14, you know, as, as we continue this, this look at God's law this morning. I'd like for you to think about His law, perhaps in a, in a way that maybe you haven't thought about before, at least perhaps not too much. And that is, I'd like for you to think about God's law as His means for protecting and preserving that which is right and that which is good. Now, admittedly, that's not the normal way that we think about law in general. More likely, we view it as a restriction that's been placed upon us and, and really, therefore, something that eats away at our freedom. But in fact, the purpose, God's purpose in giving His law, at least to those who, who look to Him, is, is the very opposite. You know, Alastair Begg has a book out uh, that walks through the Ten Commandments. We've got a couple of copies in the, in the library, and it's called, the, the title of the book is Pathway to Freedom, How God's Laws Guide Our Lives. I don't know if you've ever thought about the law of God in that way. Pathway to freedom, not a restriction that's been placed upon you, that keeps you uh, from doing that which is is right and good. But no, quite the opposite. Uh, It's a pathway to freedom. Now, you might ask, how? Well, when we follow our own way, our own path, then we want what we want, right? And then when law comes along, it is a restriction on what we want, And it does restrict the path that we follow, and what are we going to do? We're going to resent it as a result. But if we are on that other path, the path in which we are trusting in the Lord, in which we are following Him and and seeking after Him, then what are we doing? We're actually beginning more and more to want what He wants. In other words, we're wanting what is good, and we're wanting what is right now, in our, in our own minds, we may think that we know what is good and what is right, but if we know our hearts at all, then we know that we're easily deceived, uh, and we, that, that should be uncovered as we live our lives, that, that it's not our way, but it's God's way that is the, the right path, that is the path of peace and joy, uh, the path of goodness, and that's what the law is all about. You think about it. It's all about protecting and preserving that which is good and right, but it is God's way. Uh, And so that's where we need to look. And of course, what the law is doing, therefore, is it's just revealing how much we're not looking at what is good and right. Now, you'll recognize this if you think, if you were here last week uh, as we covered the sixth commandment, uh, because we see that in each of the commandments. Think about the sixth commandment. God is the creator and giver of life. And therefore, life itself is God's provision that is good and right. And so He has given us a guide, therefore, in order through, through this law, through the sixth commandment, in order to protect and preserve the sanctity of life. And you may recall that the the sixth commandment doesn't only stand against uh, outward, the outward taking of life, but it also stands against all that leads to that inwardly. In other words, it doesn't just uh, command against murder, but also everything that leads to that hatred uh, in the heart. You know, if we're looking at the Lord and trusting in Him, then... The Lord is working to remove the seeds of bitterness and the seeds of hatred out of our own hearts uh, that we may truly have freedom, that we may truly have life. And so what is it doing? It's, it, he is preserving and protecting uh, that which is in His commandment, life. And so that leads us to the seventh commandment that we're going to be looking at this morning. Uh, the seventh commandment, we went through it earlier in the lar- larger catechism Uh, It is a commandment that deals with deep sin struggles within us, no matter how you look at it. And it's also a commandment that is very much hated by the world around us. But please, as we go through it, bear in mind that likewise it, the seventh commandment, was given to us in order to protect and preserve that which is good and that which is right. And so the purpose behind it is not just to restrict freedom, but to truly give a path to true freedom, freedom from sin that binds us and tears down and sin that destroys. And so God has given us in these just few words of the law, these few words uh, throughout His entire law, but especially here in, in the seventh commandment, He's given us a path to deliverance from bondage to sin, a pathway to freedom. So it'll just take a moment. I'm going to read uh, verse 14, Exodus chapter 20 uh, is our text. This is God's Word. You shall not commit adultery. Please join me in prayer. Father, we thank You that through Your law that You are working that which is good inside of us and in this world. We pray, Lord, for uh, Your work inside of us to help us to see this in the right way. Uh, We recognize that since we were young, that our own sinful hearts have caused us to see law, to see rules and restrictions in a particular way, Uh, and primarily to see them negatively. Lord, help us to see Your goodness and Your grace that comes through the law, Uh, as it uncovers in us our own sin, and as therefore we see our need. And uh, I pray that during this time today, Lord, that you would draw our our hearts nearer and nearer to the only one that gives us true freedom from that, and that's the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, We pray that you would do a work in us this morning. We pray this in his name. Amen. You know, several years ago, there was a, there for many years, I guess, there's been a, a tradition that was very prominent that when two people would become married, that uh, they would receive as their primary wedding gift, or at least a central wedding gift, fine china now, this is something, if you look at weddings today, you look at uh, the, the list of gifts that are put out there, it's, it's almost non-existent today, but it, in the past, this has been a primary uh, gift, a wedding gift. It was for Amy and I when we were married. Uh, we received the same, and, and we received, if I recall correctly, I haven't consulted Amy on this, but uh, I think it was something like 12 full-place settings of China with all the bowls and all the plates and everything. We, we had crystal goblets as well. Now, all of it, very beautiful, and it all had written all over it. Special occasion. You know, I remember looking at all of that China and, and feeling like well, you know this is really for those times when everybody's dressed up and we come together and maybe we have a a congressman or a prince or a king that comes to the table. Uh, so now, how much do you think we've used it <laughs> over the years? Maybe in the early years, maybe a couple of times I spoke with Amy about this this morning she she thought that we uh, had used it more than just a couple of times, but that's all, all I uh, remember. I remember at one time that it was at least on display, and so you come into a, a dining room, we had uh, a glass display, and it had the china in there, but for many, many years, it's been in boxes put away down in, in the garage. Um, so it's been hidden away. Now think about this. This is this is China. it's If you look at it, and this China is nice, it's exquisite. It's really special. It's to be used. But it's out of sight. It's not spoken about. And if you think about it, there's something wrong with that, isn't it? It's beautiful. And it's special. It really should be used. But it's not. It's hidden away. Now, what could we have done early in our marriage? We could have... We could have just used it as our standard place setting. We could have just placed it out and used it day in and day out, and we would have gotten to use that special china, but what very quickly would have happened with it? It would have become like our the rest of our plates. But even further, because it's, uh, it's very fragile, it would have become chipped, would have become scratched, it would have become broken, uh, and you think about it, that's that's not the right way to use China either. So neither of those uses of China is right. It's there to be used. It was there to be used in a particular context. And it's only within that context that it retains its its beauty and its purpose, and really its its true utility. Now this might be a bit of a, a crass comparison, but that's exactly the same that is true with this gift that God has given us. The gift that is called sex. And I know immediately when I say that word, I just utter that word, often bells and whistles go off in people's minds because that's a word that needs to be eh, kind of hidden. Uh, only bring it out now and then. It's, uh, it's a word that's certainly not to be used too prominently And it's true that we live in a world in which that word has many problems surrounding it. Uh, Immediately, I just say that word sex, and you you get images in your mind, images that you see on the media. Uh, It brings to to mind addictions that take place, as well as sexual abuse in the world around us. And today, very prominently on display, uh, there's homosexuality. Uh, and the way the world around us celebrates that. And we could go on and on and on, couldn't we? There are many other problems. And so our tendency within the church can be to hide it. Sort of like I was saying we've done with our china. Put it away in a box and, and treat it like it's something negative. Like it's something that's unclean. And if you look over the course of the history of the church, there have been times, significant times, when it really has been treated in that way. It's been treated as something that's negative, unclean, uh, even as something that in and of itself is inherently sinful. Uh, You've got the traditions out there in which priests or preachers are forbidden to marry because of this Because sex is seen as something that is unclean. Now clearly, there's something that's wrong with that, isn't there? To take something that God has made, and we'll look at that, that God has made beautiful, that's a special gift from God, and to hide it away, and to act like it's an unclean thing. Now on the other hand, the other tendency that we can have is perhaps even worse to take that which is special and to make it common. To use it in ways that God has not uh, ordained for it to be used nor approved for it to be used. And what happens then when we do that? It tears down, it breaks, it destroys. And therefore, in order to, remember those words, in order to protect and preserve that which God has made as good and as honorable, He has given us this commandment, the Seventh Commandment. You shall not commit adultery. And you know what He's really doing, what He's really telling us here? He's saying, your sexuality, He's making it personal, your sexuality is a gift from God. But it's a gift that must be used within A particular context. Because outside of that context, it is wrong. It is sinful. It tears down and it destroys. But within that context, within that context, and He defines it well throughout His Word, one man, one woman, united in marriage. And one woman, united in marriage. It is what? It is beautiful. And it is right. And yes, we see this in God's Word. It should be engaged in often. It should be enjoyed. No Scripture's instruction there is plain. Do not hide it away. Do not treat it as something that is ugly or that is unclean. But use it as that gift which God has given. And in doing so, do not sin against God. Because it will only lead to misery and heartache. Rather, take it and enjoy it and use it within the context in which God has given this commandment or given this gift to be used. And that's that's the nature of this commandment. Uh, it's talking about that which is exclusively to be held within marriage as a gift from God. Exclusive. And it's clear in that. So let's, let's take a look at this. Uh, as we have with other commandments, just a couple of points I'd like to make. Uh, these two points. What does this commandment mean? And how deep does it go? What does this commandment mean first? So what does it mean, that word adultery, to commit adultery? Literally, it means, I think most of us know this, it means marital unfaithfulness. Breaking the bond that God has made when He binds two people together in marriage. And you know, the, the, the starting point for this, actually I should pose that as a question. Yeah, you know, what is the starting point for this? Now, if we're going to talk about marriage, where should we go? What is the beginning point here? Well, God has he's made this building block a significant building block in our lives, in our families, in our churches, in our culture, in our world. It's called marriage. And it's designed by God to be a haven, a refuge, if you will, from the storm, and a foundation for a home here upon this earth. Uh, We've been told, here is not your home. We are not finally and ultimately to be home here in this world, but at the same time, He has given us the ability to to live in peace and to live in harmony here upon this world. Uh, This is the foundation for a home here upon this earth. God has fitted a man for a woman and a woman for a man. He has has fitted us. Now, yes, very different, way different. Uh, In fact, as we As as men get to know women and women get to really know men, I think we'll see just how different uh, we are. So if you think about all that you hear today on the news and in the media about transvestites and about changes, it's nothing, nothing but deceptive appearances. The differences go way too deep. They can't truly be changed. What God has done is He has fit one for the other both very different but one for the other and he made it good so where do we turn for that genesis chapter 2 verse 24 therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife cleave to his wife and they shall become one flesh and just a reminder this comes before chapter 3 in fact just before chapter 3 This was given before sin came into the world. This is God's design. It is God's good gift that He gave to man and to woman. Now, of course, in saying that, I've got to say that there are times and there are seasons in life during which we're not able to be in a marriage relationship. And the Lord does provide for those. And I'd say He provides especially through His church. And then there are some whom God has given the ability and the gift to remain single without engaging in sexual sin. But I will say, he makes it clear that if that desire is there, if that need is there to be joined with another, which will be the case for most people, that's what we see, then God calls you into marriage. He doesn't call you to cohabitate. Uh, that is apart from God's provision. That's apart from His blessing. But He calls you into marriage. You know, Paul says, this is before we looked at First Corinthians chapter 6, this is in uh, chapter 7, right there at the beginning. Paul says that because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife, and each woman her own husband. Notice, notice the reason there. Because of temptation to sexual immorality. You know, he's saying that, that when the passion is there, that, that should drive you not towards sexual immorality, but towards marriage. He's saying, I've made a provision for this. I know who you are. I know your drives. I know your struggles. And he said, this is the answer. Marriage is the answer. Uh, and what a provision marriage is intended to be. And I'll, I'll emphasize that word intended because can we ever mess it up with our sin? But what a provision it is intended to be. And when, when you have that physical intimacy in marriage, it serves as a powerful force for good within that marriage. You know, one uh, pastor and author uh, that I've been reading says this. He says, sex is like superglue. That when it's used properly in marriage, it serves to seal the marriage bond. It's what he calls covenant cement that helps to, to hold a marriage secure. And that's, that's really why Paul gave his instruction uh, in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 7, not to neglect it in marriage. He says that, that the husband should give to his wife her marital rights, and likewise, the wife to her husband. And then he goes on to say, you must not deprive each other. This is what God has given us as a gift You know, marriage with one another to seal this mystical communion between husband and wife. And again, he does provide, there is provision there for those certain people to remain single apart from it. But if you have that drive inside, you can know, I don't have that gift inside. If I'm not able to maintain uh, without sexual sin, then marriage is the answer. And he says that within marriage, you must not neglect this. And and certainly we know that there are times and there are seasons when we are not able. But apart from that, he says, you must come together. This is good and it's right. But, but, when there is sexual activity outside of marriage, what happens? There's a breach that occurs. There's a rupture of this intimate bond. You know... Uh, you, you may know what happens. If you take some of that, that glue, it's Bondo glue that you get at, uh, at Lowe's, uh, and it's, it, it says on the label that uh, this, this is stronger than many of the materials themselves, that it holds together. So if you take that glue and you, you glue together two pieces of wood and you let them sit for a while, but then you decide, ah, I've made a mistake, and so I've got to pull it apart, what happens? What happens? Well, it splinters, and it breaks the wood, not at the seam where you put them together, but the wood itself is broken apart. That's adultery. It's a breaking of the marriage bond. It's destructive. Remember in in marriage, even Jesus said this, they are no longer two, but one flesh. One flesh physically, emotionally, spiritually. But what therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. And notice how this commandment is actually a protection. It's a protection. It's God's provision, a protection of that which is good if it's rightly lived before God. You know, marriage is a foundation for needs to be met. Marriage provides for a home. Marriage provides for emotional and psychological and physical needs to be met. Marriage provides for children to be raised in a right way in the home and cared for. Now, of course, we, we, we must have great compassion. And we're called to it for those who themselves are in broken relationships for many reasons. And we must seek them out and we must care for them and for the children that are involved. But at the same time, we must affirm, and we must seek out where possible, God's design. It is good, and it is right. Now finally, in saying that, I've got to mention divorce. It's a word we all know well, isn't it? Divorce, that which breaks and ruptures that communion with one another. That's why divorce is so strongly spoken against in the New Testament. It, it, you know, it sounds a lot like adultery, doesn't it? Because in Jesus' teaching, divorce is described in terms of adultery itself, and therefore, this commandment is clearly speaking about divorce as well. It is a breach that destroys what God has brought together. And therefore, there are only two, two situations outlined in Scripture under God's law in which one may divorce their spouse. And this is not, again, a restriction that's just levied. This is a protection that's given for that which God has called good and has given us as a gift. Uh, Those two are the other person engaging in adultery itself. Doesn't mean there must be divorce. But it means in in that situation, there can be. And often, that's, that's what... Happens, and that's what needs to happen. The other is abandonment. Uh, The other person, as an unbeliever, just leaving the relationship, and part of that abandonment uh, is when there's physical abuse coming on. That's that's another type of abandonment. It is an egregious abandonment. But the commandment itself is designed remember this, to preserve marriage, to preserve this physical union which is from God and which is not to be taken lightly. And so it calls for faithfulness in marriage day in and day out through all the other struggles of life. And God gives us provision for that in His Word and by His Spirit. And so that's the basic meaning of this commandment. But beyond this, the question, how deep does this commandment go? We've seen it with the other commandments and we saw, got a glimpse of it uh, with the larger catechism statements. Uh, So, although this commandment is speaking directly about unfaithfulness in marriage, it's speaking about the actual act of physical coming together, men and women, uh, a man and a woman, this is not the only way of committing adultery. And so, we've, we've seen this in all the other commandments, often they will, they will uh, speak about the most extreme form of sin, murder in the sixth commandment. But they also point to all the sins that lead up to and contribute to it, and all the sins that are of the same type. Now, I'll just just say it. Uh, most people around us would call many of these things if they were, were to put a word on it. Many of these things that we're talking about here, they would call them prudish or they call them uh, overbearing or, or old. That's from ancient times. But the Lord has told us through His Word and through this commandment that this is all about protecting marriage according to His design. As we know, we already know it, the world around us hates that. They want autonomy from God. And so, of course, they would see these things as being overly restrictive and not as protective of that which God has has made and given as a gift and called good and right. But if we are those who trust in Christ, then what Jesus said in John 15, 19 uh, applies here. He said, if the world hates you, Know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, I chose you out of the world. Therefore, the world hates you. And he's saying the world hates that which is mine. And so we expect that. We expect the world around us to hate these things and to hate us as we seek to walk in this way. Keep that in mind. And so the Seventh Commandment does not only deal with actions, but it deals throughout with thought, our thought life, with the desires of the body. And furthermore, it it not only deals with those who are married, but it governs those who are not married as well. And therefore, most centrally, when we're talking about the seventh commandment, talking about thought life, it deals with lust. What is lust? Lust is to look at a man, or to look at a woman. It can be a, by, in person, or it can be a screen that we're looking at. It can be in the imagination. And to think about them in a sexual way. And we need to be clear, the sin is not in the looking it's in what you do with your mind and with your heart with it. It's in viewing another person as an object of our desire. This is called out as lust. And so Jesus says in Matthew 5, 27, you have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. And so he's speaking about this commandment. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery in his heart. You know, what's he doing? He, he's using this commandment to say, to dig into the heart and to say that lust is sin. That it's forbidden by God. Now notice there in that. The, the problem is not our culture. It's not the way people dress. It's not the way they behave. It's not uh, the media that we have out there. Now all of this, this is, these are contributors. They're there. We need to pay attention to them. But it's not the heart of the problem. The problem is right here. The problem is in our own hearts. And this sin of the heart may lead to any number of sinful actions. And so, if you carry on with those, if you continue with those, if you fantasize about those kinds of relationships that are of a sexual nature, that can be through most romance novels. That can be through many things that we see on the screen, things that excite desire within the heart. In this way, if we look lustfully at those who are around us, whether male or female, and all these things, what do we do? We break this commandment, we break this commandment. There's no, there, no other way of looking at it. Homosexuality, No matter how popular it is today, no matter how celebrated and lifted up it is today, and I don't need to go to all the passages that speak very directly to it, but whether it's lust in the heart or acting upon it, it is breaking this commandment. We also break it through comments that are suggestive or by telling certain kinds of of jokes Uh, You know, Paul says in Ephesians 5.4 that among you there, there must not be even a hint of sexual immorality or any kind of impurity or greed because these are improper for God's people. Now, we have to say here that these are not easy things. These are things that The counselors deal deeply with people. Pastors deal deeply with people uh, because they're deep matters of the heart. They're embedded deeply within us. And often they they seek and they even seem to demand gratification. And we know what our hearts do. They constantly seek to justify these things and, and to make them seem okay. And so we need to have a great sense of compassion there, a great sense of of understanding. But think about what the Lord has given us. Think about what the Lord has said. How, How has He given to help us? He's given us marriage. He's given us that which is right and good. And He said, don't continue down this path, whether it's in the heart or acting out of that heart in actions, but take what I have given you and enjoy and delight in and use, but don't continue in sexual sin. And so that brings up the question for all of us, where does my heart stand? Am I walking in that path where I see what is right and what is good, and I'm seeking to follow that, or am I in the other path where I want to be with the world and, and set this aside and follow my own way? Now, all of these things that we've been talking about, I've got to be certain that we've uncovered things here that if we're honest, that every single one of us struggle with in some way, at least in the heart. And remember, it's not only here in this commandment, but it's in the others as well, but in particular in this commandment. But I want to remind you of what we talked about last week, of what our main purpose is here as we approach the law it's not to use it in order to find a way of salvation it's not so that we can say somehow look at my life you know, look at how how good i am how i'm keeping the law lord won't you accept me no the main purpose here is to expose our sinfulness to do exactly what the law does so well and so if it's accomplishing that if it's showing you the weight of your sin, then you need to hear these words. This is out of Isaiah chapter 55. "'Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price.'" Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread, and you labor your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me and eat what is good. Delight yourselves in rich food. Incline your ear and come to me here, that your soul may live. And I will make with you an everlasting covenant my steadfast, sure love for David. You know that covenant that he speaks of there? That's the covenant that our marriage is, that a marriage covenant looks forward to. That's the faithfulness that God has for us. He is faithful to us. And as we see our own sin, and as we struggle with that sin, He gives us a place to go, and that's why He says, come to Me, everyone who thirsts. Come to the water, and he who has no money, come, buy and eat. Because He's made that path before us we see our sin and we should see our lostness and the ugliness of that sin and where it gets us where it takes us but he's given us a good place and a right place because there's one jesus christ who has already paid that price for us he died upon the cross to pay that which we couldn't pay Therefore, come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come, buy, and eat. He also lived a perfect life and accomplished the law. He accomplished that which we couldn't accomplish. And so he says, come to me and join yourself to me, yoke yourself to me. And we know from that that he is, as we'll sing in a moment, He is the fount of every blessing. He is the streams of mercy, never ceasing. He gives that to us. He opens Himself up to us. And He gives us a way that is sure and and that is right. So I'll just say, if you're thirsty this morning, and if you see your own sin, the law reveals it to you, then look to Him and drink deeply of Him, of the Lord Jesus Christ. Let me say a word of prayer for us. Father, we thank You that uh, in Your goodness, even though it's painful for us, as we walk through Your law and we see in Your Word what it truly is, and we see our own hearts displayed before You, and uh, more and more we see the depth of our sin. Thank You, Lord, that You have a purpose in it all. Thank You that You are calling us to You. Give us eyes to see and give us ears to hear that voice that is calling. The voice that we hear and and we read is the voice of the shepherd. And it says His sheep will hear His voice. Not the other voices that are calling. They will hear His voice and they will come. Uh, We pray that we would help that You would help us to hear Your voice, that we might come and follow. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.